listening to Generation Executive, a podcast focused on leadership, careers, and business with executives and leaders from Generation X. Welcome to the Generation Executive Podcast, where we explore the unique perspectives and insights of today's executives and leaders from Generation X. I am your host, Andrea Bricka, and together we will learn how my guests navigated the workplace during their careers and the thoughts they have about today's business world. Generation X is often overlooked in the slot between large populations of baby boomers and millennials in the workplace, and now Gen Z is a hot workforce topic. On this show, we hear from those generally born between 1965 and 1980 who are considered part of Generation X and now drive innovation in their industry as leaders and executives. Join us as we explore what is unique and similar to this generation's career path and discover how these leaders continue to make an impact and shape the future of business. Whether you're a fellow Gen Xer, a leader looking to understand and connect with this generation, or simply curious about the leaders who came of age in the 80s and 90s, this podcast is for you. Joining me for this episode is Jonathan Yellen. Jonathan is a founding partner of Greyheart Capital, where he sources investments in entrepreneurial businesses. Jonathan has a unique perspective. Beyond being a Generation X himself, he often works with the different generations of family-founded businesses and the people looking to acquire those businesses. Jonathan, welcome to Generation Executive, and thank you for joining me for this episode. Thanks for having me. So can we just please start out by you talking about your background and career and what led you to what you're doing now? Sure. So I grew up in a household where my family had owned a manufacturing business outside of Buffalo, New York, and my dad, who was a practicing lawyer, and my cousin, they owned it together. And my cousin would come to our house pretty much every Wednesday, uh, and the two of them would go over how the business did for the prior week. Uh, they would review all the checks. They would sign all the checks together. They would view the payroll, sign sign all the payroll stuff. And that was our dinner table conversation on those Wednesdays. And other stuff too, but there was a lot going on. And this, you know, that that was during probably a decade of my time before I went to college. Um, and so I kind of knew that I was going to do some kind of a hybrid between law and business at some point in my career. Um, I went to college, I went to law school, uh, practiced law for a long time as a corporate lawyer. And it, it was interesting, I got into really representing entrepreneurs because I had been doing a fair amount of private equity work for private equity funds. And I started doing a little bit of work here and there for the entrepreneurs on the other side of the deals. Um, and it's, they're very, very different populations. Uh, and uh, but the private equity guys, super smart, very focused on building, but they didn't look at building a business the way the entrepreneur and the business owner did. It was just a very different mindset. And I learned a lot from an early one, an early deal that I had worked on. I learned a lot from the CEO of that company who was just a brilliant salesperson, but a really good leader, a good visionary. And and a lot of fun to, to work for, which was, you know, it's always nice when, when you're thinking about clients. Um, and, and, and he really sort of lit the fire for me a little bit in terms of my enthusiasm about entrepreneurship. And 
later, probably, I don't know, maybe a half dozen years later, my law school roommate referred a client to me who was looking to buy a business. And he had been out of business school for a couple of years. And he said, you know, I'm starting a search fund. And I had no idea what it was. Um, he had called just as we were sitting down to dinner. And at that time, I think we had a little baby. And my wife was pregnant with our second kid. And she had made dinner. And and I missed two hours of dinner because I spent that time talking to this potential client uh, about his search fund. And we can get into the details of search funds afterwards. But what was great about it was he had that same energy that that former client had, just brilliance and insight and vision and probably sell ice to Eskimos. And, um, and so I started working for him basically at no cost. I didn't charge him anything because I really didn't understand sort of the model he was taking. Uh, and he paid me when we closed his acquisition, which he, he bought a company. I served on his board for about, I don't know, six years and just an all around great experience. And, but I was doing it more as a lawyer and as a director and, but not as an investor and not as an entrepreneur. And, um, years later I had been in house at a big public company. We sold the company and I was 50 and I was looking around and my wife and I, I was like, I, I don't know what I want to do. And my wife said, well, why don't you go back on what, to what you really enjoyed the most about what you've done and see if you can leverage off of that, which turned out to be working with the searcher who remains a very close friend of mine. And so I talked with him and a bunch of other people in the search fund community. And I decided that I was going to go into the business of investing in search funds and in the businesses that the search funds acquire. And that's really how I got into the entrepreneurial side of things. And so I'm sort of an entrepreneur in the sense that I started up an investment business, but really I'm investing in entrepreneurs and in, who are buying businesses from, as you were describing them, from multi-generational family ownership um, for, that wants to sell for one reason or another. So that's how I got into it. So talk a little bit about what this is, a search fund, as you mentioned it, but also how you are working with di different generations because of the type of companies you're looking at and the type of investors you have. So um, from, from the point of view of what a search fund is, a search fund is a very specific niche structure for a very, very lower middle market to almost smaller than that, private equity, LBO type transactions, except... They're, they're under levered. And so for people in finance, under levered would be you're not really trying to maximize how much debt you can put on a company so you can put as little money up as possible to buy it. This is more uh, an entrepreneur wants to buy the business, run the business, grow the business. So they don't want to put as much leverage on it because they don't want to burden it with as much debt. They need to capitalize it with more equity. And they, they typically are looking at businesses that are between a million and a half and five million dollars of reliable EBITDA, proven EBITDA. And, you know, it, it went back to, I guess, 1984 is when sort of the idea was was um, was birthed at Harvard Business School. Uh, Irv Grossbeck, who was a professor there now at Stanford for many, many years, and before that had been a, um, a, a cable TV pioneer in, uh, in New England, he, he came up with this idea and he passed the hat to a bunch of his uh, friends in New England, uh, other investors, and they backed, uh, I don't know, a couple of Harvard 
business school alums who wanted to go buy a business rather than go to investment banking or go to a buyout shop or go to a venture capital firm or whatever. They wanted to buy an existing business that was a profitable business, a good business, but but for one reason or another, the family wanted to sell it. it you know, and the typical target is at that time in particular was maybe not a manufacturing business, could be a service business, could be a distributorship, but it's it's a multi-generational family-owned business that's that has good margins, that is in an industry that's growing probably faster than GDP. Um, but the family that owns it has been running a kind of, you know, sleepy kind of, you know, for a lifestyle, right? So it paid for the Mercedes, it paid for college, it paid for a couple of trips every year. Uh, but none of the kids want to come back because the business isn't based in, you know, in Manhattan or in Boston or in, you know, Los Angeles, it's based in Dubuque. And there's nothing wrong with Dubuque, except that the kids now live in Los Angeles and they don't want to come back to Dubuque. And uh, it's a good business and someone should buy it. Otherwise, I got to close it down. And um, and so the searchers come by and they they they're finding these businesses by turning over rocks. They have to really do a lot of work to find these businesses. And then they come back to their investors and say, here's the business I found. Here's all the characteristics. Here's how I would structure the deal. Do you want to invest in it? And the, and the people who back their search, who funded the, the cost of doing the search, have the first right to invest in the deal. And that's the basic structure of it. Over time, it's delivered outstanding, outstanding returns. Um, and it's metastasized in the sense that it has spread to Europe, it's spread to Asia, it's spread to South America. There are searchers literally all around the world. The model is taught at all the leading business schools. Um, I'm going to conference it. At Michigan next week at Ross, you know I'm going to go to one at Wharton in a couple of months. There's Harvard has one, MIT has one, I think next month. I mean, there's there it's everywhere, and um, and it's you know it's it's a really exciting little as I said niche in in uh, in investing, and it's a small ecosystem of investors and searchers and financiers like banks and so forth that that'll take that that small piece of debt, and so. You know, it's just an exciting time. So you would ask as a second thing, sort of working with, you know, the, the, the various generations of families, that's mostly on the seller side. Um, sometimes what you'll end up having is you'll have a, a father and a, and a child running the business together. Uh, the, the, the child might want to stay in the business in some capacity, but the father has concluded. And it's usually a dad, by the way. It's it, just as a matter of fact, from a selling point of view. Um, but the, the the father has has concluded that for one reason or another the kid's not going to run the business by themselves, and they're really not going to lead the business, and and no one has the energy in the family to really do what's necessary to make the business prosper for another generation or two. Um, and so you know along comes a searcher, knocks on the door, says, "Hey, you know, I'd like to buy your business." The dad is like, you know, I'm 70 years old. I'm tired. I've been doing this for 45 years. The, the kids, you know, call it 40, 45 years old, been working in the business, knows a lot about it, is not really a sophisticated business person, maybe doesn't know how to do a lot of finance stuff, but knows a number of the clients really well and is a, and is a worthwhile sort of sales leader. So that's a typical situation where you have the multi-generational. And, and, and how do you keep that child involved in the business and still let the buyer uh, lead the business because the buyer wants to be the CEO. That's part of their model. 
Um, and so this kid's not going to be the CEO, the 40 year old kid, but it's, a, they're not going to be the CEO and someone's going to come in and buy it, but they'll probably keep, you know, roll over some equity, maybe 10% of the new ownership of the business. And, um, and so you'll see that from time to time, particularly if there are valuable relationships that can be sustained and grown. Um, that's actually one of the critical things uh, that might be considered. So that's a typical sort of scenario. The other is business is owned by multiple people in multiple parts of a family and they're squabbling. And how do you get them to, to, to sort of line up to actually sell the business? That's very common. Um, and very frustrating. And a good searcher is really a good politician. And they, they have to woo everybody and get everybody on board, um, and knowing that they all have you know, different objectives. Uh, and that's really, the, really to me, the, the big thing that distinguishes the intergenerational stuff is that my dad's generation, you know, my dad was born in 1938. They have a very different view of work and um, and of business and of the future than you see with people who are, you know, say my nieces and my nieces and ages are like 30. And they just, they have two very different perspectives about the prospects. I mean, people who grew up after World War II just had so much more optimism. I, I'm by nature an optimist. Uh, and, and I think pretty much any equity investor particularly a, a private equity investor where they're in, investing in something that's illiquid for a long stretch of time, they have to be an optimist. I, I think, you know, the idea of working at a business for, you know, 40, 45 years for your career, a single business, growing that business, committing to that business, really very hard for, for the current, you know, cohort of 20-year-old, 25-year-old, 30-year-old people. It's just not something that they do. Um, and it's not, I'm not saying that as a criticism, I'm just recognizing as a dynamic. So for the, the idea that they're going to do what their dad did or their grandfather did, and it's just not going to happen. And so that's a conversation that oftentimes is delayed and delayed and delayed until a, a catalyst like this searcher comes along and the dad's like, look, I want to sell, you know, I'd love to have you run the business, but you don't want to stay and run the business, do you? Not if I have to do it the rest of my life like you did, no. And that's the conversation that happens, and it happens all the time. And there's a real difference in mindset. The other thing that's really interesting is on those occasions when you have seen transitions from one generation to the next, how that's accepted and received by longstanding employees, particularly at, at sort of a leadership level that thought that you know maybe they'd have an opportunity to, to run things for the family, and they didn't. You end up having some fair turnover, which is not necessarily ideal as well. So that's kind of you know my broad perspective on. It. And that actually, that last comment is interesting, right? Is it is it the leadership style? Is it what those employees' expectations are? Right? Is there a, is it the difference that they see going to come up in the in a different generation of leaders? Do you think that's what it is, or do you just think it's just more like I worked for the for the father, and I don't want to work for this kid? I think it's all of the above. I don't think any of those are mutually exclusive. Um, you know, I, I, and it's very, very fact specific, like yeah. incredibly so. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it is absolutely the case that there, you know, that you will find people who've worked multiple decades for the father or for the grandfather. And, you know, they don't, you know, one, the kid may not want them, 
right? Or the new the new CEO may not want them. And, the, and our CEOs, our searchers are typically in their 30s. So coming in as a stranger to run the business and to sort of say, hey, you know what, we're going to change how some of this stuff works. And so for somebody who's been doing something their way for a long time, that's often hard, right? And we're now in today you see that happening over and over and over again because technology is really driving a lot of that change in how people work and 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 the tools they use to do what they do and uh and and that does create a lot of tension that creates a lot of generational tension without question my kids look at me like I'm crazy because I'm like well I'll email you that and they're like we don't use email I don't, I don't, I don't look at my email. I'm like, how do you function without looking at your email? They're like, I use Snapchat. I use, I use text. I, I'm like, I, I, I can't, I can barely talk to my children because of that. And I think that that's actually something that happens in the workplace all the time. It does. And I, you know, one of the things we like to talk about here is the technological change, right? I mean, your career, I mean, you, I, I know you weren't practicing when this, you know, this search funds, you know, evolved in the 80s, but how much things have changed since that time, technologically, socially, how, how have you navigated that in the, in the type of things you've done throughout your career? When I, when I started to practice law, they gave us computers and we found like within six months, all of a sudden we had access to the internet, right? And if you remember, the first thing that you could find on the internet and practically the only thing you could find on the internet was not safe for work. Right. And they made, um, made a whole Broadway show about it. <laughs> so, yes. yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, and, you know, and I, and I would say that um, the pace has only increased in terms of the tools that are developed and trying to figure out which tools to use you know, they talk about uh, the searchers today, they all talk about, well, I've got my tech stack all figured out before they launch their search to go look for a business. And that's sort of a big deal. They talk to people who just finished their search to find out what they used. And when they tell me about it, my eyes glaze over. Because to me, the most important thing today, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, is the ability to establish quickly a relationship with somebody sitting at the table or on the phone with you. And technology doesn't really help you with that. Um, it only maybe makes identifying who to try to establish that relationship with makes that a little bit more efficient because it helps you with sorting things and so forth. But um, I think a lot of times it's a distraction, you know, um, and, 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 I often will tell our searchers, get on a plane and go visit them. Just get on a plane. It's going to cost you a little bit of money. It comes out of your budget. Learn how much more productive that is. Go talk to the owner. Go talk to accountants in a city that you think you might want to go work, work in and buy a business in and see if they know of anybody who's looking to sell a business because that's one of the ways you find something that other people aren't looking at right? It's just word of mouth because a lot of businesses sell by word of mouth. That's the other thing. It, so having relationships is going to get you proprietary deal opportunities that other people may not see because you've put the time in. And that's something that really, that, you know, it's funny. I've gotten a lot of pushback from, from, from young people about doing that. Oh my God, that's just, you know, it's, 
it, it's going to be so inefficient to go talk to, you know, the lawyers who in, in, in Boise who do, you know, corporate law, corporate work or trust and estates work, but they're the ones who are going to know who's thinking about selling their business for one reason or another. Maybe someone got sick and they're old. Maybe partnership is going bad and they've got to just get liquidity and sell the business because the partners can't get along. There's a million reasons why it happens, but if you're not on the spot and you're not and you're not on that person's sheet to call, they're not going to call you and you're not going to hear about it. And you're going to miss that opportunity. And no amount of technology is going to get you that. That's all about building relationships and being able to do it really, really quickly. My business partner refers to this as the special sauce. You've got to be able to establish, you know, really, you know, a sense of confidence coming from the other side of that conversation very, very quickly. Um, and one of the biggest things is, is doing your homework ahead of time. Now, technology might be able to help you do that. So you can sort of preload in your own mind where you may have commonalities, where you can start to build the foundation for a relationship, who you're going to talk to. And God help me. It is a, it is a, a, a challenging thing to get a 28 year old, a 32 year old to really think about it in that very discreetly interpersonal kind of way. It's very different than, than my dad's generation, for sure, where everything was understood to be very, very personal. And people were extremely protective of their client relationships, but all their professional relationships, because that's where their business came from. Well, you, I mean, you took the words kind of right out of my mouth. My question to you was going to be, are you getting pushback? And it sounds like you do get pushback um, on that regard. How do you, how do you go about really convincing them? I'm, essentially, how do you lead and mentor a younger generation as somebody from Generation X who do, does bridge what your dad's generation did and what these searchers are doing? So we, uh, as a rule, of the roughly 300 or so searches that are going on in a given year, we might invest in five to 10 of them give or take. It, it just depends on the people we come across. And we're very particular about the people we invest in. Um, so, so one of the criteria we look for is coachability, right? Uh, we've had people who played football in college uh, before they went to business school. And I've talked to the coaches from their football team to say, tell me how, the, how, how does this person take feedback? You know, how do they process it? Um, how do they implement it? And, you know, at the same time, we want people who can think independently, which is sometimes a, a conflict. And one of the really critical things for us is a sense of both confidence and integrity. So they, they're not feeling threatened by feedback. What they are is they embrace it because they know that with it, they do, they can be better, but they're, but they're, and they're very comfortable with it. Um, so because we screen for that uh, with our searchers, it's not so much that I get pushback. Um, it's just not necessarily made their highest priority when they've got a lot on their plate. Um, and it just depends. It depends on the person, depends on where they are in the stage of their search. It depends on really the luck of the draw. What, what business owners have they been talking to and who's been receptive and, you know, how they've gotten into the groove of talking to them and sort of found their way. We've had searchers where we just, you know, they just naturally know how to click with people. They just have really, really great EQ. And um, 
it's really it's it's actually great fun to watch them at work because it's just it's a gift and we've had people who are kind of introverted and reserved and careful but they also resonate their the way they work they also resonate with a certain kind of seller and you know and and they're very effective and they they know themselves the ones that we pick the ones that we invest in they know themselves and they know how they work and they know what works for them and they've typically been very successful in their careers to date so it's not as hard as all that um i it's more when I'm talking to groups of, of, of searchers or to people who are thinking about search and I'm trying to test for our purposes, whether or not there's somebody we would want to invest in. Um, I'm trying to really get a sense for their comfort level with that kind of one-on-one engagement. Um, because ultimately, even if they're using all the tech in the world, they still have to have these one-on-one conversations with the seller and they have to get that seller comfortable with the idea of not only selling their business, but selling their business to this person who may or may not actually be writing as big a check as somebody else who's talking about buying the business. But for one reason or another, they want to sell to our searcher. And that happens all the time because they focus on the relationship. So beyond that relationship part, what advice would you give to people starting out in business today, this generation that's at the, you know, starting out as a Gen Xer who's seen a lot, what, what advice, and we talked a lot about the relationships, but you know, that and beyond, what, what advice would you give? So I really, you know, as try as it sounds, I really believe that it's 99% perspiration. Honestly, I, 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 I don't think there's very little in life, but certainly very little in business that is brain surgery or rocket science. Um, there's a lot that is just grinding work. There is a lot that is caring about people and paying attention to people and understanding what it is that they need or that they want and finding a way to get there. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I tell, I tell people, um, so my, my, my family's Jewish and, 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 um, I grew up in a house where there's a lot of Yiddishisms in our house. And, you know, there are three really key words that I tell people all the time that, that I think every successful entrepreneur in an ideal world would have chutzpah, which you're probably familiar with, rachmonis and sechel. And chutzpah is a, is a kind of, is nerve, is, is a willingness to take risk. Um, but if you take too much risk, you know, you've got a problem. Um, and you know, business is in so many ways about risk, but it's also dependent on people. So then there's Rachmanis and Rachmanis is about, is, is very hard to translate with precision, but you could take it as give a guy a break, cut him some slack, have a heart. Okay. So uh, compassion and uh, but you don't want to be a doormat either, right? You don't want people to be able to just walk all over you. And so then the third thing is Seichel. And Seichel is a, is a kind of balanced streetwise wisdom. It's experience. Uh, you know, you talk about somebody being an old soul. I think that's a bit trite. But um, it's somebody, you know, who has, you don't have to, it's not so much gravitas as it is uh, just judgment, right? Just you inspire people's confidence that you know what you're doing because you've, you've, you've seen it before. And, um, and if it gets hard, you know how to get through hard stuff, right? So you have those three things, 
Seichel, Rachmanis, and and Chutzpah in balance, it's like it's like a really well-made wheel. It 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 rolls evenly and it just keeps moving and it and it's and it, without much effort and without much energy. If they're out of whack, it's wobbly or it doesn't work, and you know you fall into a ditch. And um, and I just I, I think that that you know don't be in a hurry to say that you're all you've got all those things in, in order, right? Take time to actually build that up. Um, because the credibility that comes along with that is just so powerful. And you, the ability to be effective as a leader in a business, you know, is so dependent on on being balanced, on be and on you know, not being, not being the loudest person in the room, not being the first one to talk and the last one to talk and the only one to talk, which is a huge problem for me. It's, 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 it's having stuff in balance and it's, it's so important. It's so important. And so do your work, work really hard, but, but, but keep those three things in mind. And you're, I think you'll have a much higher likelihood of success. You'll certainly be more satisfied over the course of your career, without question. I feel like we should end there, but I do want to talk about your predictions for the future. So we're going to spin a little bit towards just your predictions for the future based on what you do, right? As the, as these generations do change and these businesses change hands and mm -hmm. how should, how are you preparing for them? How should people be preparing for what the future, what you see as the future of the business? Well, you know, Heraclitus was the one who said you never sit, stand in the, or step in the same river twice. Um, I, I think things things change constantly. Um, so one of the really critical things is being comfortable with that kind with that dynamic. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who get very set in their ways, and I think that they do that at their peril. Um, I think things will change inevitably. I think technology will cause some of that. I think AI is going to be fascinating to see what happens and what is happening is fascinating already. Um, it'll be, you know, the thing with AI that really uh, concerns me, I guess, is, and I don't know if concerns the right word, but I think it's going to really make credibility and trust harder and harder and harder. It might actually make it easier depending on how it's deployed um, we have, there's so much that we don't know right now, um, that's hard to form a judgment about it. Uh, you know, you hear a lot of Pollyanna stuff about it and that could be right by the way. Uh, but we just don't know. Right. And we don't know there are good actors and bad actors who are trying to work with us. It's, it's literally the most exciting thing in technology today without question. Um, and how that's going to affect everything from small businesses to, the biggest businesses out there uh, remains to be seen. It's going to affect everything. And it's sort of like, you know, when the iPhone came out or when the internet started or when Microsoft Word came out or Word Perfect came out or the, it just, you go back and you look at the things that changed how we behave. And at time, only a few futurists could tell you really what they thought would come about of it. And I think it's it's really interesting to speculate, but speculating is not something that I've demonstrated a lot of skill at, uh, and it's technology, and I'm not a technologist, uh, but it's really, really interesting, and 
how it affects things and lives on a granular level and businesses on a granular individual level and opportunities on, on a, on a, that's going to roll up into some really incredible things. I think it's going to really drive our economy and, and, uh, in very constructive ways, but you know, there's always going to be the risk that there's bad actors out there and you just have to, there has to be a way to rein them in. And, and, and I don't know what that's going to be yet, but they'll figure it out. I'm an optimist. I told you. <laughs> I, I, I've heard it. So any parting thoughts, any last parting thoughts as we conclude here? Oh goodness. Um, don't be afraid of risk, but, but don't, don't give yourself too much credit too early. I like it. Well, Jonathan, thank you for joining Generation Executive and for sharing your insights. I really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it as well. Now for this episode's Generation X informational moment. The Journal of Empirical Finance published a peer-reviewed article in 2023 titled New Kids on the Block, the Effect of Generation X Directors on Corporate Performance. The article provided the first empirical evidence that the presence of Generation X directors is associated with better corporate performance. The subject of the study concerned generational identity as a potential driver of directors' ability to impact company performance. They documented that companies with Generation X directors engage in value-enhancing ESG and innovation activities and facilitate the inclusion of women on boards. Thanks for listening, and please join me next time as we hear another story from the unique perspective of a Generation X executive, and we shed light on the evolving landscape of business and the enduring values that shape success. We hope this conversation has provided valuable insights and inspiration to all generations. Thanks again for listening. I'm Andrea Bricka. Generation Executive host Andrea Bricka is a managing partner with leading talent advisory firm DHR Global and has over 20 years of executive search experience. She can be reached at A-B-R-I-C-C-A at dhrglobal.com. The Generation Executive Podcast is produced by Will Bricka.